This is Songwriter, the podcast of stories and answer songs. My name is Ben Arthur. Today, we have a brand new song from Johnny Latira of the band Tough Sunshine. But first, a story from my friend, Mike Veve. This is a ghost story I wrote about the ghosts that we see and the ghosts that we refuse to see every single day around us. We walk amongst people with no homes who are clearly mentally ill, who are clearly struggling. While I'm trying to raise my children to be ethical, thoughtful people, and there's this disconnect where we see somebody clearly in need, clearly asking for help on the sidewalk, on the subway, on the street, and we pull away from them, or we view them by not viewing them at all. We choose to ignore them. We treat them like a ghost. Uh, when I lived in Hamilton Heights on Broadway in the 140s, there was a man that I would see very regularly every single day walking up and down. And many of the events that are described in the story are, are images of this man. I speak Spanish. I grew up in Puerto Rico till I was five. And a lot of the times when I would walk up and down the streets of this neighborhood, you know, in Hamilton Heights, that people would walk by and sort of assume I was a cop. I would hear them talking about me, that I was a police officer. For the purposes of this, because I was going to be talking about a botanica and santos and things like that, things that I know, I needed it to be someone who knew a little bit about that. I needed my, my character to be someone who knew who Don San Lazaro was. I do know that, but it's complicated to say, yeah, he's a blue-eyed, half-Puerto Rican white guy. <laughs> so I just went with a neighborhood kid. The whole story hinged on the day that I walked out of my house and turned around the corner and out of nowhere the shrine had appeared. And so I went over to a man who hung out on the corner, Pedro, he has a macaw. And I was talking to Pedro and I, que sucede? And he told me, oh, this guy he was upstairs, you know, and he, uh, he, he overdosed. Pedro told me everything. He said, oh, the ambulance came and took him. And, you know, and I said, well, who, who, put the, who put the shrine up? And he said, oh, the lady from over there, you know. You know, there was a question about, oh, well, should you say that there was the, uh, the Mexican flower seller? And that's directly from the, uh, the guy in the, Pedro on the corner was like, oh, you know, you got some carnation from the Mexicans. And he got, you know, and it's like, you know, some of these guys put a presidente. And like, but that, that tone of... You know, this guy going from this person who's thought of as a nuisance, you know, or like thought of as some obstacle to avoid on the sidewalk, was dead and it was serious. And it was serious and it meant something to people. In real life, the repercussions to passersby of that event were, were, were you know, were meaningless. The man died, he overdosed. And in the end, you know, he's behind, he's, he's behind the narrator and he's a ghost. Or is he? The big question with all, write, all writers and anybody writing a ghost story is, do you make it a ghost or do you make it a psychological ghost? And I think that I was, I was trying to, you know, have my ghost be in both sides of the Venn diagram there. But have your ghost and haunted too. I, exactly, exactly. <laughs> 
The piece is not always straightforward or easy to understand, at least on first listen. Mike, who was an acquaintance of the great Toni Morrison, heard a story at her funeral that he very much takes to heart as an artist. I went to her memorial service, and Oprah Winfrey was talking about, well, you know, the beginning of Sula is so dense, it was very tough for me to read, and Toni Morrison told her that, my dear, is called reading. The story is also written in second person, a choice that Mike made with just as much intentionality. Once you say you, you're saying the person you're speaking to, and it's like you're saying yourself in triplicate, you know, it's self-reflective. It's almost we. Yeah, it becomes us. It becomes us. We all. Here's Mike Veve reading his story, Standing Room Only, live in New York City at Booney Cafe. Thanks, everybody. You used to see him coming out of that SRO uptown, down the block from the Botanica, a bald-headed, scrawny old man, somewhere between 60 and 80, all his teeth gone, leaving his cheeks sucked up into his skull. You used to see him sleeping in a square cut out of the sidewalk of dirt where a tree used to be a spent crown of plastic miniature bottles around his head, over there next to where the old Dominican men play dominoes. You used to see him come walking down the street like a stepped-on ant moving in stopwatch time, his leathered hand reaching out for you, insisting in a voice that threw moistened towels over the S's. Oye, pana, dame acá una peceta. Used to see him every day, for days, for weeks, for years. Used to see him so many times in front of the statue mobbed window of the Botanica, looking at that statue of raggedy ass San Lazaro. Eventually, you stop seeing the old man at all. Stop seeing the keloid asterisks on his skag bruised arms, his blanched eyes, the blotched, stubbled skin of his face pulling impossibly to up inward like he was swallowing his own mouth. He wasn't a scary street person, you know, not one of those street corner cats holding a brick who scream and reek of cardboard piss, but still, you'd step away when he'd come up on him or pretend you had a call or whatever. You'd see him in his out-of-season out of goodwill clothes blending into the block like urban camouflage see him staring at San Lazaro's statue in the Botanica window, Saint Lazarus, the patron saint of the sick and the poor, bent and covered with sores, a statue begging in the chaos of the crowd of the saints in the Botanica window, with a couple of bucks left at the base of the santo that the old man would scratch, scratch at through the glass. You'd see that same old man on a Broadway island bench, sleeping sockless in December. You'd hear the mumbled limb of his voice repeating, Dame acá una peseta, brother. You'd see him with his hand out, always with that, yo, yo, my brother, give me a little money. You'd see him every day until one day you didn't. You never gave him even a little money, not once. Uptown, by the SRO, when you died slump in that communal toilet down the hallway, with a hypodermic needle sticking out the inside of your elbow like a spent nail, 
An ambulance comes and takes you wherever. Your neighbors take a wooden grocery crate and put two tall red wax candles in the crate with the Virgen Maria and Santa Muerte on the glass, both women holding their arms out towards the next world. They put the crate beneath, between the buzzer door of the SRO and the window of the Botanica. No one ever sees them do this. Someone leaves a couple fillies and a bottle of Presidente in a paper bag and a little DR flag. Someone draws a crayon sun with tears in its eyes and a cross. Someone leaves a copy of the Watchtower. Someone leaves a Yankee cap that won't snap and a plastic rosary and an Elmo doll. Someone takes a picture of a picture of you and tapes it above the box and the people buy those red and white carnations the lady who moved here from Puebla sells along the side of the corner store and they lay the red and white carnations up on top of the box. The wooden crate is there for four days until the candles run out and the flowers go limp and brown and the Philly blunts go missing and then it is all the way gone, like that. The next morning, the sky looks like some weak coffee brewing down the hill as you walk to your train past the Botanica window. You stop when you see a buck on the ground near the iron trap door that opens to whatever it is they keep in a Botanica basement, and you walk over to pick the money up. You see your own face reflected in the window of the Botanica, crowded among the host of statuary. And you see the fierce eyes of San Miguel Arcangel with his burning sword and his triumphant wings, and the soulful eyes of San Gabriel trumpeting the coming of the Lord, and San Sebastian stuck all through with arrows, looking up like, what did I do to deserve this? You see the doleful eyes of the statue of stooped over San Lazaro, covered in sores, wading through the faded dollar bills at his feet. You bend to fetch that stray sidewalk dollar, and when you stand, you see in the window, amidst the dusty tumult of angels and saints, the reflection of your own face and the face of the old man with the excavated eyes. That old man is standing behind your shoulder in the reflection with both his hands reaching around your body. He is reaching his arms around you and is leaning the subsumed ruin of his mouth closer and closer still to your ear to ask, to ask, to ask. And now for the song written in response. I'm Johnny Latira from the band Tough Sunshine. Started out as a as writing poetry, and I never had the wherewithal for fiction. And uh, once I started writing poetry that was repeating itself enough, I just picked up the guitar and started making them into songs. It's a big pain in the ass a lot of the time to write. It's very difficult. This is something that I haven't uh, yet publicly admitted, maybe. <laughs> I like going onto Wikipedia and, and reading about things, and, and these, these cross-connections come up. There are these, these like moments of like synchronicity that happen that are just 
cannot be accidental. It's like a Ouija board, that's what it is. There's this real, very real and very organic crossover or spark that happens or connection that, that, that comes into play that is really mind-blowing. This technology is with us, it's not, it's not going away. It's only gonna get more and more and more insidious and, and, and close to us in our lives. Johnny was struck by the tonal shift that happens in the middle of Mike's story and wanted to reflect that in his song. I want that to happen in the song. I want there to be that same, like it's almost like a key change in a story. Like that's, that's how I look at it. I wasn't looking to do a key change necessarily, but which would have been a really cool idea now that I think about it. Damn, can I do this again? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's the same song, it just goes up a half step at oh, the end. Yeah. Classic. Yeah. Classic. I've always been the middleman, you've always been the middleman, we've all always been this middleman. As it comes together at the end, it feels like the end of the story to me. Like where he's looking in the, the reflection, the guy's behind, you know, it's like there's this awareness that you're in the middle. There's a, there's, you're looking at your reflection, there's someone behind you, you're the middleman. Here's Johnny Latira with his song, Middleman, live at Booney Cafe. I've only ever been a middleman. I'm a permanent go-between. I'm only here to do the least that I can. I think that you know what I mean The mountain's too high The valley's too low And when I get to either Well, that's as far as I go I've only ever been a middle man But I can intercede If I only got a half a plan Let's hope that's all that you need The skin is too broken The affliction's too real And brother, I'm sorry But that's how I feel I've only ever been a middle man I've only ever been a middle man I've only ever been a Halfway, you only meet me halfway, cause 
river's too wide The current's too fast The bridge is unstable We're breathing our last The relics are buried The foundation is laid And we tie together In one divine braid I've always been the middleman Yeah, we always been the middleman Well, we always been a middleman We always been a middleman That was Middleman by Johnny Latira of the band Tough Sunshine, written in response to a story by Mike Vebe. The night of the live performance at Booney Cafe, I asked Mike to read another piece, a sparkling, cheerful essay I'd heard him read before. But it wasn't until we spoke later that he told me the heartbreaking inspiration for it. It's an ecstatic piece about all of the mishaps that come about as a result of backpacks and the students that I work with teaching middle school for the past 18 years. I was trying to avoid writing about a picture of a backpack that I saw on the A-Train platform at 34th Street when a uh, student of mine had jumped on the tracks and committed suicide. Googling, trying to find out more, I found that there's this newspaper article from a newspaper in England that had photographs of, you know, the police at the scene, and then there was just one image of a black backpack on the uh, platform. I think my way of processing was, I can't deal with this, this very, you know, painful, real backpack. And so I'm going to talk about all the other times with backpack, and I'm going to, and I'm going to, I'm going to hyperbolize and dramatize and celebrate them as much as possible. Here's Mike Veve with his piece, Chekhov's Backpack. The backpack is loaded in the first act of the school day. Each student comes to school with their backpack on their back because if not, something in the world has come jarringly undone in their lives. Even on field day days or jogathon days or all school trip days, they ask and ask again, will we need our backpacks? And they ask it even if they're told no, no you won't, because a day without a backpack is an act of middle school apostasy. We've had backpacks left at homes, at country houses, at mom's house, dad's house, wherever. Backpacks left on buses, subway trains, and zip cars, dial sevens, Ubers, lifts, and taxis. They are mourned when lost and wept for in relief when inevitably turned in by the Samaritan who can't be bothered to steal flash drives and pencil cases. We see at least one backpack penitent a day, lonesome and shuffling from room to room, singing their lost backpack songs, having door after door unlocked for them while they run their hands along the mossy sides of their memories, reading the lichen on the shady side of the day's events, pulling open closet doors and interrogating anyone who looks like someone who'd hide a backpack in a bathroom for a joke. In the school, 
The backpacks are everywhere. The hallways are the Jansport Battalion of the Backpack Civil War dead. <laughs> Thoughtlessly posed and bloated where they dropped, unzipped halfway and unceremoniously discarded in heaps, covered with plush poop emojis held in the pieta arms of thumb-sucking furry gorillas who gaze unblinking at the pitiless fluorescent lights. There are backpacks perched on the hallway ledges like a squat flock of flightless burly birds left to brood over nests of gum wrappers. Backpacks still on the backs of school kids sitting in their school chairs. Kids who sit strapped in like fighter pilots ready to roll through the heavy G's of classroom maneuvers, ready to hit the eject button and from the class when the backpack parachute is activated, when the class has become the, and when the, class has become the surly bonds of earth to slip. Some students ascribe profound and shamanistic properties to their backpacks. Any backpack on occasion eats or destroys or removes from this mortal coil a tribute, be it homework or project work or letters with vital information about PT events where there will be drinking or folding money or report cards or letters home or magazine sale forms and advisory reminders. The backpack is Melville's dead letter office for all the papers, limp and exhausted papers, shine smooth through the weight of the months spent past the crumpling stage into the gentle texture of silken fragile fabric. All the orphaned, unscrivened, unshriven papers that would prefer not to ever reach the hands of any bill-paying adult at the house. Backpacks as wishing wells, where some students search for things that are not there, but ought to be, in front of waiting and waning impatience teachers. Backpacks of lost hopes, where students move pages and folders, binders and spiral notebooks, heaven and earth, as they play out and honor the intricate kabuki dance steps of the bullshit backpack homework search. Accompanied by the waning words of a long-held tradition, I know I put it in here. My mom must have taken it out for some reason. Backpacks crushing the spines of our youth. Batan death march backpacks filled with every single assigned book, every last matchbook-like dictionary we force the children to get, which sit like final straws on their Quasimodo shoulders, heaped atop the notes from October and the advisory journal, which reads only, Dear Advisor, whose name I don't yet know and an academic planner filled with blank pages of possibilities, like a sunless Norwegian winter of snow days. Backpacks filled with iPhones and Dr. Dre Beats and gym speakers and those fucking fidget spinners and lunch boxes and metal thermoses retaining bits of pasta and quinoa and arroz y habichuelas and sandwich crusts and Skittle wrappers and jackets and tap and point shoes and writing utensil cases stuffed with an Asgardian Bifrost bridge of markers exploding in colors across Midgard. The darkness of the backpack keeps the Viet Cong river cage of pencils borrowed every day for a trimester in math hidden. The Didi Mao, Didi Mao, muffled by bat, bat mitzvah hoodies and t-shirts. It's dark inside of those heavy backpacks, heavy with the dark matter of middle school, pulling down, 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 like he ain't heavy, he's my backpack. 
There are backpacks that roll on rackety wheels, the first great and terrible invention of the new millennium. You could see them clearly in Colin Powell's aluminum tube presentation to the UN, rolling wheeled backpacks that simultaneously weigh so much on their own, but facilitate in their facility the accommodation of even more shit to be dragged in medieval clatter behind students who hodge from class to class or clamber clacking down Columbus, pulling the heaving, tipping schmata barrels of books behind themselves like plague carts, calling out, books, bring out your books. The backpacks on the tables that hide the shy kids, completely invisible to their teachers. Backpacks worn, turned around, facing forward, third trimester style, but before the water breaks and the head crowns. Still life with a backpack in silhouette sitting in the girls' room window ledge. Backpack used as a pillow by the kid, pretending to watch Eyes on the Prize in social studies class, keeping an entirely different dream alive in the darkness. The backpack that reached out a swiping paw from behind the shady velt tree of the table that tripped the lady teacher and cracked her patella in half with the chunk sound of a cucumber broken in the center part while wrapped in a towel. Even in his heartfelt, though inevitably eventual apology, the kid whose backpack it was the lady teacher tripped over made a face that suggested, what could I have done? Am I my backpack's keeper? In the hallway of the school, there's a Roman Senate of backpacks with knives out, surrounding a Republican National Convention of backpacks, practicing obstruction in the hallways like the backpack tea party. Don't y'all tread on us, you hear? The students need their backpacks, require their backpacks, bear their backpacks as, they bane and bur as their bane and burden. But if you ask them, they'll tell you their whole lives are in them. If you say in the first part of the story that there's a backpack hanging on a kid's back, then in the second or third part of the story, it absolutely must come off. If it's not going to be used in the story, it shouldn't be hanging there at all. Thank you. That was Mike Bebe with his story, Chekhov's Backpack. The next episode will feature a brand new story from Lauren Morrill and songs written in response by Justin Cutway and Vincent Muhammad. Around the time of the live show with Mike and Johnny, I wrote a song about homelessness as well. Specifically, it was written in response to Stephen Adley Gerges's most recent play, Halfway Bitches Go Straight to Heaven. The song is called Halfway Home, and you can listen to it wherever music streams. Don't forget, there's a live songwriter performance coming up on Sunday, September 27th, featuring Odie Lindsay and songwriter Mary Gaucher. The show will be online and free, and you can get more information at the social media feeds of either myself or Mary Gaucher. Songwriter is a part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, along with some other great podcasts. Make sure to check out americansongwriter.com forward slash podcast. And you can always get early access to the Songwriter Podcast at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, check out the Paste Podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Last, as always, thanks to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe. Acoustic Cafe.